Welcome to episode seven of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast. Today's episode is all about burnout and how we sometimes lose perspective on what's really important in life. This was a realisation that I really had got so, so ill, I think, Mm -hmm. and I'd really lost my way. This was a realisation that the things that I had been doing that I thought were the right things to do were actually not the right things for me. And I think that that has to come to everybody in their own time. It's time to be your best version of you. No fluff, no nonsense, only practical ways for you to be your own extraordinary. We learn from the real stories of real people who've been there and survived the life challenges that we all face. Remember, one person's story can be someone else's survival guide. Welcome to the rediscovery of me. I'm your host, Holly Hartley. Hello, everybody, and a very big welcome to episode seven of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast. I have been told that episode seven is a bit of a milestone at the point at which some fall by the wayside. Well, thanks to all the incredible support that I've received to date, I am still very much in the race and loving it. Thank you so much for all the feedback that you've been providing me. I must give an extra special mention to the very wonderful Kate in Springfield, Missouri, over in the US we had a rather lovely chat about being posh. Anyway, a favour if I may, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on your podcast app of choice. Uh, This helps me to grow the show and means that potential guests get to hear all about us. Today, we're taking a very candid dive into what it's like to experience burnout. I really hope it's helpful. My guest on today's show is a woman who shares an extraordinary story that I imagine will chime with many of us who often feel overworked and overwhelmed. A top flight career as a finance director and business mentor, gaining success and notoriety as a champion for women in business, serving on regional and national boards and working with cross-party committees, all this whilst raising four children. Life was demanding to say the least. In early 2016, she, in her own words, crashed and burned and was discovered by a care worker sobbing in the corner of her mother's kitchen. Refusing to slow down, even after a stress attack was initially diagnosed as a heart attack, she simply carried on, believing that the board roles, the recognition and the salary were the measure of her success. A few months later, her body said no more and she was admitted to hospital where a week later tests showed no physical cause for her acute symptoms. At this point, her eldest daughter took matters into her own hands, drove Wendy to a Buddhist monastery in Scotland and left her there, saying she would come back for her, quote, when she had sorted herself out. What followed was, in Wendy's words, an epiphany, a realisation and ultimately a long journey of undoing and letting go. Today, Wendy Bowers is a writer, performance poet and business mentor. She believes that every individual is uniquely created with a gift to share with the world, but that the majority of us never become fully conscious of our gift. She's here today to tell us her story. She is the very lovely Wendy Bowers. Good morning, Wendy. Uh, good morning, Holly, and lovely to be here. Ma'am, thank you so much for coming down and seeing us, particularly on a soggy day like today. Well, there's some blue sky coming, so we can live in hope. 
And I believe you're going to go out and explore the peaks a little bit. I am, yes, yes. It might be a bit soggy, but I've got the right gear, so that's fine. Great stuff. Good to hear it. Well, let's start right back at the beginning then, you know, with, with your story. So born and raised into a loving family, you and your siblings had very middle class trappings. You say, however, that every family has its own truths and you grew up tiptoeing around your mum's mental health issues and living with the anxiety that comes from never knowing what mood your mum would be in when you came home from school. What was it like to grow up like that? I think when you're growing up in a family like that, you don't actually realise that it's different to other people's families because Mm -hmm. you've nothing else to compare it to. I do know that there was always a feeling of anxiety, you know, sitting at the top of my stomach. Whereas dad was always very much on the level and always had time for you, he was very strict But with mum, it really was, you know, you could walk through the door and there'd be a present on the bed or you could walk through the door and get a slap round the head. Mm -hmm. So we certainly weren't encouraged to feel that that home was a place where you could relax. Mm -hmm. We didn't feel that it was somewhere we wanted to bring our friends back to. And actually, if you hadn't kind of booked your friend in two weeks in advance and and made sure it was all right for them to come for tea, etc., then, you know, if you turned up with a friend, they would be sent back home again. Mm -hmm. So it was when I got into my teens that I realised that our family wasn't the same as other families. And when I went to other people's houses, it was it was so relaxing and it was fun and people teased their parents and, and things which we were never allowed to do at home. And all of us, myself and my brother and my sister, spent a lot of time in our teens at other people's houses, you know, where, whenever we could, staying there for the weekend and things like that because we were just more comfortable in other people's homes than our own. Do you think that's changed you as a parent now? I absolutely think it did. I was I was always determined that our home would be somewhere where my children could completely be themselves. Mm -hmm. And yes, because there was a lot of us, you know, we had to have some rules and we had to all pitch in and and do jobs and things because I was very busy out working. But there were two things I I was determined to do. I was determined our house would always be welcoming to my children's friends. But I was also determined that I wasn't going to keep moving my kids because we moved every four years when I was growing up. So every four years... Although we only moved maybe 10 or 15 miles, there was a new school to go to. There was new friends to make. What was the reason behind that, Wendy? Dad used to get itchy feet. So he would do a house up and then he would, you know, he would just want to move somewhere else. And he always wanted to live right in the middle of the And was it always bigger and better? Uh, not necessarily. We, it wasn't necessarily bigger and better. I mean, there was a particular move that always really upset Dad because he, he actually was in the place he wanted to be and we were very happy. We were in a very small village near Gisborne. But Mum was determined that she would fit, get fixated on things and she was like this all through her life. Mm-hmm. And she was absolutely determined that I was going to go to grammar school. Mm-hmm. And I passed my 11 plus and should have gone, but they changed the boundary of the county and I therefore would have to go to a school in Yorkshire. I was perfectly happy to go there. That's where all my friends went. But no, there was the principle of the thing. That's what it always was with mum. There was the principle. So I was kept off school for three months while they argued with Margaret Thatcher, who was the then education minister. And the only way I could get to grammar school was if we moved. So mum moved us basically from this house that dad loved into an area where I could go to school. And I don't think Dad ever really settled again after that. Yeah. 
Then, of course, mum always fell out with the neighbours. Wherever we moved to, she would completely alienate us from the, you know, the people either side because she was just so awkward about everything. Uh, hedges and, you know, just anything that, that she could fall out over. She sounds like a real force to be reckoned with. How do you think that shaped you as an adult? Do you think it's made you more resilient? I do think so. I think she was a very misunderstood woman. I think that in her own way, she just genuinely wanted the best for us. And I do believe that she really loved us. And in the final two years of her life, and I only lost her this year, when she was suffering from dementia, a softer side of her came through. Mm-hmm. And she, mm-hmm. you know, she finally told me how proud she was of me and how much she loved me. And mm-hmm. I was so glad that I stuck through it with my mum and that I never gave up on her mm-hmm. and my brother and sister didn't manage to do that and they kind of cut all ties with her about 10 years ago but I just stuck with it and I'm really glad that I did because I felt that in those last two years I got to understand her a lot more mm-hmm. and I believe that and these, almost got a bit of closure yes absolutely and obviously these mental health issues that she had and she was you know bipolar it was never properly diagnosed till very late in her life that, you know, it did have a real effect on us growing up. But what it did for me was that I do believe that it made me able to face anything. And I actually think um, had a real influence on where I ended up working. So I met my first husband very young. Mm -hmm. I think I was, because I'd been brought up in a family that was very controlling and there's no two ways about it, it was controlling. And there was always a little bit of you listening for if mum or dad were shouting of you, you know, and you had to, or if you weren't back on time and there was always that slight fear and anxiety. And I ended up actually marrying somebody who was really quite controlling. uh, And that often happens. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, we had a lot of happy years, you know, three brilliant kids, enjoyed building a business together. Mm -hmm. But when um, that marriage ended in in our mid-30s, I took my skills that I'd learned in that business, plus this resilience that I'd gained growing up and and, you know, always managing to cope with whatever was thrown at me. And I combined that into a business where I dealt with the turnaround. So I would work with businesses, small businesses that were on the brink of collapse. And it didn't matter what they threw at me and, you know, what they rang up and said to me, I could always sort it out. Mm -hmm. I could always deal with it. Nothing phased me. And I've been like that all the way through my life. So, yes, you know, it looked to other people like we had this wonderful upbringing, you know, with trips to the theatre and the opera. And, and you know, I got taken abroad where a lot of our friends were still holidaying in the UK. And we had nice houses and I had, you know, ballet and elocution lessons and piano and all this kind of thing. But behind the door, it, it wasn't a happy, happy family, really. So... Just going back a little bit, you married and had your first, you've got four children, but you had your first three children fairly young in life. What was your work-life balance like at that stage and how did you manage? Yeah, well, it's it's funny you say that because at 25, I wasn't actually considered a young mum. So if you look back at the, the mm. records that I've got, we all left home, my brothers and sisters and I, in our teens. First child didn't come along till I was 25. We got the business established actually first, but then I had three kids in four and a half years. Wow. And uh, people <laughs> used to joke, people used to, to say to us, did you not have a telly? <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was great. And I really wanted the kids to be really close in age. 
Because it was our own business, then when the kids were little, I was able to take them to work, even though it was a factory and we had 30 staff by then. You know, as long as we stayed in the office, we were, we were safe and, and stuff. And, and so I was very, very lucky that I had that flexibility that in later life, I, you know, I, I worked so hard for other women to have that flexibility because mm-hmm. if you can, you know, leave work at three o'clock, and just even have that couple of hours with your kids at the end of the day. Yeah. And, you know, it's really, really important. So I was very, very lucky that until my mid-30s, um, until the kids were kind of 10, 11, going up to secondary mm, school, mm. I had had that flexibility and mm. I had been able to come out of work and see them in their school shows and everything mm, without mm. any feelings of guilt. Mm. Uh, I think, Matt, from, from my career perspective, I think... You know, it's ironic. I've just been on the radio this morning talking to to the Prime Minister about, you know, the role of head teachers. And I look back now at my career in education and I think that I was beaten by the system. But I think the thing that did it for me and I was a successful head was the fact that I didn't get that balance that you're talking about. You know, I remember I would have days on end where I wouldn't see the kids before school in the morning and I wouldn't see them at the end of the day at night. And I think for me, it took a real deeply personal thing to clarify that to me. It was the death of my husband's mum, totally out of the blue, that just all of a sudden one day made me think, oh, gosh, what am I doing? One mm. day I'm going to woke mm. up and the kids are going to have grown up. Mm. And I think in this day and age, it's, it's hard for women. I think it's hard for dads too. I think what was in, what's interesting for me is that I've done both things. So in, in up to being in my mid-30s, I did have the flexibility. However, I had a very controlling husband. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have flexibility around other aspects of my life, around social life and things like that. He was a complete workaholic and bless him, he thought that was the best way to support our family. But we would go seven days a week without seeing him. Yeah. So I saw what it was like to be married to somebody who was never there. So I felt like I was very much bringing up the children on my own. I then, when I started my own business, very quickly became like my ex-husband. And, you know, the business and my career, which I'd waited all these years to sort of step into my own power, if you will, kind of became very addictive. That Absolutely. I, I, I was, you know, succeeding. Yeah. I was yeah. somebody that people, kept, you know, would say was inspiring. People would say of me, how on earth is she doing it all? Mm. You know. And so- it's a really potent, intoxicating thing, that. And, you know, if I'm honest, I had that too. And it, it was one of those things that kind of appealed to my ego. And I never considered myself having a big ego. But I do think, you know, like you say, you, you step into that power those kinds of things almost become another child because they're something that you've created. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And it, and it was so exciting for me to mm-hmm. be able to, mm-hmm. you know, I'd been the finance director in my husband's business and I'd taken us through some very, very difficult years. But at the end of the day, it was always his business. He made, you know, he made all the strategic decisions. And so to be building businesses where you know, I was making the decisions and, you know, I was choosing the people I wanted to work with was very exciting for me. And also to be able to, alongside the business, support other women in business, which is what I very quickly moved into, was really gratifying for me to be, you know, and and make a difference to people. That's what used to drive me. I was making a difference. So there was this almost contradiction in some ways between I guess what people saw on the outside, this 
powerhouse, this superwoman doing it all, you know, an incredibly inspirational woman. And then what was happening on the inside? Yeah, because what was happening on the inside was that, you know, I remarried and had um, a husband who was very, very supportive and always is of, of my dreams and where I want to go. And was there working shifts, so it worked around the children as well. So that was really, really helpful. But I became ill quite regularly, you know, and at first, you know, I'd always have a cold or I'd, but you just push on through. And Mm -hmm. there'd be many, many mornings where I would just stand in the shower and, you know, say to myself, yes, you feel awful, but you can do this, you know, get out of the shower, put your makeup on, you you get on the train down to London, you know, whatever it was that I was doing. And there was a lot of years where I went abroad on business as well. And you know, thoroughly enjoyed that. But the amount that I was packing in was just crazy. And I do look back and and think, you know, the early years of Katie growing up, because Katie came along to my second husband and she was 10 years younger than the next one. And I, I can't remember. I can't remember hardly any of of Katie growing up, really, until she, she got into her teens. Thankfully, I have written journals my whole life. You know, I've always been this frustrated writer. <laughs> and, you know, there are 40-odd journals under my bed. Wow. And when the older children were little, I wrote my journal religiously every night before they went to bed. And I think I poured a lot of my angst and things onto the page, and it really helped. But once, you know, the business is started, I would still write the journal two or three times a week. And I would recommend it to anybody. So thankfully, I can go back and open the journals and read about what was going on. You know, even if even if it's it was just a, <clears throat> it's just all a big blur. Lost in I the remember fog. more about the businesses than I do about Katie as a little one, and that's you know, they're the most precious years you ever have when the kids are young. And you know, I I really applaud your honesty in being so candid about that because I think that will touch people's hearts because I think people there'll be a lot of people out there who feel the same way you know I remember taking on a particularly challenging school when my youngest was four months old and my husband was a stay-at-home dad and he would literally bring her in between meetings and I'd breastfeed you know and my PA would bat baby vomit off my shoulders and all that kind of stuff and I look back now and with hindsight it's a wonderful thing but at the time when you're there at the chalk face it's really hard mm-hmm. I mean I don't think it's unique I don't think you and I can possibly be the only people who've done this and <clears throat> yesterday I was talking to another guest who's going to come on the podcast and a guy gave up a similar high-flying career for similar reasons. Why do we work this hard, you know, even to the detriment of our physical and mental health? It's unfortunately the way that we are now conditioned in the West, Mm. that we have measures of success that are material. And, you know, those measures of success are, you know, your two cars on the drive and your, your house and your, your lifestyle mm. and, you, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and you only need to go back kind of 25 years and only 25% of families had a second car and now 80% of families have a second car. And, you know, why do we need the second car? We need the second car so that the second parent can go out to work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I coached somebody recently who was completely in this this space of, of you know, she'd got to the top of her career and, and but she had, she actually she didn't, she'd chosen not to have children, but she had no personal life really and, mm-hmm. and, and her relationship was suffering and everything. 
she decided to make a radical change and go back to working part-time, get rid of the second car, downsize, spend a lot more time in her relationship and, and is so much happier. But you have to be so brave to do that. Oh, my gosh. Really brave because people are judged Mm -hmm. by their career. They're judged by their, you know, their their material possessions. And I am trying really hard now to say to people, we need to get a a balance. You know, I don't like this work-life balance. Your whole life should be in balance. Absolutely. And yes, it is very difficult particularly when we receive messages all day long from everywhere about what we should look like, you know, what we should feel like, what kind of things we should be buying our kids. And unfortunately, you know, children are bullied if they're not wearing the right trainers or, you know, they're bullied if mummy turns up in a Ford Fiesta and everybody else's mum has got a Range Rover. And it's a terrible place that we are in, really. Mm -hmm. And so we know that you can't always make radical changes But the changes that I've managed to make, I believe that most people can make. Can can we go back a little bit? You you raised something that really resonates with me on a very, very deep level, which is almost like a precursor, really, to making the changes that you're talking about now. And it's this notion of weakness, you know, and you, you, you said something that I totally agree with, that to make the kind of change that you and I are talking about, to, to almost step out for a while is such a brave, brave thing to do. And if we put aside the kind of financial commitments for one moment, what is it that you think empowers people to finally make that decision to say, you know what, I can't do this anymore? Because I talk, I think about my experience personally. When I did it, people assumed I was having some kind of nervous breakdown. People assumed that I'd gone crackers. Whereas actually, you know what, I'm so proud of myself because it's the single bravest thing I have ever done the people that get this that start to think about there's more to life than this thing that we are being fed by the media and by education and and by everybody else are unfortunately mainly the people who have had the breakdown or become very ill or lost somebody very close to them which makes them think this is my one life or my Mm -hmm. one life Mm -hmm. that i'm aware of Mm -hmm. and Am I spending it in the right Mm. way? Is there a way then, these critically clarifying moments, is there a way that we can enable people to have that kind of sight without those experiences? This is the really challenging question because whilst on the one hand we have got government and the media and the health service talking about mental health issues, you know, arranging for people to go on on training programs so they can spot people at work with that might have a problem. And, and so there's a lot of talk about this at the moment, but we are not fully embracing it. Mm-hmm. We are not. And interesting to see that actually there is talk about we need to start finding, to, you know, being able to work in different ways and, and being more flexible. And maybe we should be working 32 hours a week, not 38. And, you know, there's there's this being talked about at the moment because we're in the run up to an election. But I find it very, very difficult to get through to people who are at that stage where we were both at, where we were coping, where Mm. we were putting on our makeup in the morning, where we were going out and feeling that, you know, we were being strong and we were doing, you know, the right thing and, and, and we were holding it all together. It's very difficult to get it through to people 
that are in that position that there is a different way to be that actually just by making some small changes you can start to appreciate the things in life that are free mm. you can start spending more time with your children or doing some of the things that mm. you thought you when you were a teenager that you were going to do and enjoy mm. in life and to, to get that through as well to you know to the employment and the legislators and the as we said the employers of this world is very very difficult mm. because especially at the moment our employers are battling to keep profitable and they're battling to keep their businesses afloat. Mm. So if you start saying to them, you know, we need to, they know that things aren't right. The most majority of people will be looking and saying, why are our productivity levels some of the lowest in Europe? Why are we losing billions of pounds worth of, of labour each year because people are off with stress? So people are looking at it, but we're not yet making the changes so that people can enjoy life without being stressed up to the hilt. Well, let's go back to your story. Let, let's share your story because I think people will get an awful lot from hearing about this next chapter in your life. From the material that you provided me ahead of our recording, you said that things became harder when after the death of your father, you supported your mum with her continuing mental health issues and, as you've already mentioned, her eventual dementia. Tell us, what was life like during that period? So you still had the career and then these other tiers of complexity as well. Life was manic. It really was when I look back. It had to be extremely well organised, but I felt like I was just being pulled in every direction. I felt that there was never any time for me. I had kids that were teenagers, so they, they needed, you know, help and attention. Mum was increasingly reliant on me because she didn't have friends. Mm -hmm. She didn't ever manage to keep friends. Mm -hmm. So I was her friend. So there was every Friday night I spent with her and all day Saturdays I used to spend with her, especially as, you know, she did get older. And then came obviously the time when we noticed that she was starting with dementia. And that period and the first couple of years that somebody has dementia is so, so difficult because they don't want to admit that there's anything wrong. What were the first signs, Wendy? The first signs were her hiding things. She would hide keys. I can't tell you how many sets of keys we had cut, but she would hide things. She would forget where she was driving to in the car and get lost. She became very anxious about the smallest of things. So a doctor's appointment, for example, or anything, you know, it would become the focus of her whole week, or, you know. And so those were the first kind of signs. And then there, were, there wasn't really so much personality change. If anything, as I've said later on, she became nicer. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, then it obviously got to the point where she wouldn't cook herself any meals. And uh, also one of the first things that goes is timeline. So they get very mixed up as to what's day and what's night. And they want to eat in the middle of the night and they only sleep for short periods. And so it quite quickly got to the stage where when I'd finished doing what I was doing at home, you know, I would go around and sort mum out. I'd get her ready for bed. I would help her get showered. I would make sure she'd had something to eat. I would put her to bed. For two or three years, we managed with increasing care coming in, which we had to pay for ourselves because we were in that middle middle earnings bracket and mum had, had a house. And then eventually, um, by which time my older children were all off becoming independent, but Katie was still a young teenager, um, we sold mum's bungalow because 
she couldn't do the gardens anymore, which was the love of her life. And she couldn't manage on her own. We moved her next door, which was, in hindsight, a huge mistake. Right. <clears throat> the fact that she was next door, where she could, she was at the stage in her dementia where she couldn't understand that that was her space and this was our space. And she just ended up being in with us all the time, created huge problems between me and my husband. And I missed signs with Katie that things weren't going well with her at school. And really, I was under so much pressure, but I was still up and down to London all the time because I was on a, a national board and I absolutely loved the role. It was the role I'd waited and worked for all my life where I was supporting women. I was representing women. I was representing this organisation in Parliament on cross-party reviews around the gender pay gap. I was being asked to feed into things like the BERT review, which was looking at the number of women in enterprise. I was holding debates all over the country where we were looking at why there weren't more women as directors of SMEs, mm. not not just looking at, you know, the big corporates. Mm. In our SMEs, which are small and medium-sized enterprises, only 20% of directors are female. So it's right across the board. So, so you had this I real... had this incredible career. And at the same time, I was desperately trying to still earn money in my business, which, you know, had a few staff and, and offices and and also being up nearly every night with mum who was banging on the wall and I'd be going round and she'd want beans on toast at two o'clock in the morning and yeah, just and I eventually was exhausted. Something snapped and you said to me that you were found in a heap sobbing on the floor of your mother's kitchen by a care worker. Yeah. I had come in from a very, very busy day at work. I'd gone into mum's, she'd been in bed all day refusing to get up. She was very depressed as well in the early years of dementia, extremely depressed, talked nonstop about killing herself. So we were always looking for tablets and things like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. My mum had tried to commit suicide twice in the past after she'd lost my dad and then she lost her brother who used to live with her. Um, was that as a result of her dementia or prior to it? That was prior to it. That mm -hmm. was to do with her mental health problems. She kind of relapsed into depression mm -hmm. in the early mm -hmm. stages of dementia. So I'd gone in... And she'd been extremely nasty and I was only trying to help. I'd taken her tea up and she'd thrown it and, and I was cleaning it all up and I ended up losing it. I ended up really swearing at her, which I'd never done, mm. and telling her, that, you know, she was a burden and all mm. these kind of things. And then literally coming down into the kitchen and feeling so bad that I talked to her like that when she couldn't help it. Mm -hmm. And literally, yeah, I was. I was um, the carer walked through the door, and I was just curled up in a ball in the corner. But at that time, you made a decision to go back to work. Yes. So they managed to get Mum into a care home for some respite care. They actually took her that evening. Um, Realised that you know, for two years, I'd been trying to cope on my own because trying to work out where the help comes from when you're looking after somebody at home mm -hmm. is very difficult. Mm -hmm. It's like a maze. One it's likes so to think that there's, as I've said to, I remember Hazel Chasty, who is episode three, we spoke about these kind of mythical organisations that sweep in and support when something happens and they just don't They're exist. They're not there. They're not there anymore. No. Anyway, so uh, luckily the doctors, you know, managed to, to get her in for some respite care and I just literally picked myself up off the floor and went, and went to work. I then got to the kind of Easter time, can I just can I just ask? Did anybody notice at that time, colleagues or family? 
Did anybody think, hang on a minute, something's no. not right here? No, I think I was just always so good at putting on this front. I was really good at being strong. You weren't allowing yourself to be vulnerable, I guess. No, I was. I, the, I've always been and always felt mm. like I was the glue that held everything together and that if I went, everything would just fall apart. Mm. So I then managed to get mum into some permanent care very near to us so I could go and see her still every single day. And But there was the financial side of that that I then had to sort out yeah, as well. Yeah, of course, of course. So there was a property to sell, there was a property to buy, a property to do up, you know, so that we could get the rental income coming in to pay towards a fee. So I took all that on board as well as the business still. And so the Easter came and I was president of our local chamber of commerce at that time as well. And we'd been to an event on the Saturday night and we'd stayed over in the hotel and on the Sunday morning... I woke up early about five o'clock and knew there was something desperately wrong with me. I was in acute pain near my liver and my husband initially joked and said, oh, you had too much to drink. Well, I never drink if it's a business event. So it, it wasn't the drink. I'd had like half a glass of Prosecco. He actually saw how serious it was and rushed me into hospital and they wanted to admit me. Um, they suspected I'd had a heart attack, but uh, they, I stayed in hospital for the day the test came back. It wasn't a heart attack. So I discharged myself, even though they wanted me to stay in. I discharged myself because I had a huge grant application going in for a client and the deadline was Tuesday lunchtime. And if I hadn't got it in, I'd have lost a lot of money for me and him, uh, mainly for him. The grant was like £120,000 or something. So I came home with these very strong painkillers that the hospital gave me ate those for two days, pressed the button to get the grant in and then got back in the car and drove myself to hospital. And Why why do we lose that perspective? I, I think you, you, you're not thinking straight. There is a physical reason, a physiological reason why we lose all perspective in that when you are living with continuous stress and it is pumping cortisol-based chemicals into your system and so many of us live like that now it literally switches off the logical reasoning part of your brain and you're living in fight and flight mode so you're not making sensible decisions which isn't good for you in your career anyway but is really really damaging to your health what's that that is doing is damaging every single cell in your body and ultimately it leads to you know diabetes it leads to cancer it leads to heart disease living with this amount of stress in your I, system. I think those decisions are made though from a from a place of of goodness you know I think that we like to think we can't let people down you know that I can remember for example going back to my second born again I remember I went into premature labour at 34 weeks I was admitted to hospital and they managed to stop it but I remember being there and them talking to me about maybe having to have, she'd like to have to have steroids to pump up her lungs and all this kind of stuff. And I remember thinking at the back of my head, but I've got to check my email. And I remember lying in that hospital bed and checking my email. And I look back now and I think, what the hell was I doing? Mm-hmm. But I bet there's a lot of people who listen to this who think, well, you know what, I've done that. interestingly, with my youngest, I did exactly the same. We were on, we'd snatched a week's holiday And I started in labour down in Exeter and they had to give me the drugs to stop it Mm. and they managed to stop the labour and she came at the right time. Mm. But but that obviously was a message from my body 
mm. as well. Mm. Um, so our bodies will give us the messages, mm -hmm. but we don't often listen to them. So we we may find that we are continually ill with with chest infections or, you mm. know, throat things or tummy things, you know, and we're not listening. We just carry but on. You finally did listen. I you, had to listen. You I had drove no choice. yourself back to I hospital. I drove myself back to hospital. I was on a morphine drip. I was on, I went through all the tests. I went through scanners, everything. And after five days, it was Easter weekend and they said, we can't find anything wrong with you. Uh, we think it's muscular and sent me home. Uh, so I came home straight to bed, very poorly, very weak. And my eldest daughter and I were supposed to be going on a long walk with her because she had fantastically, when I look back, she had encouraged me to start walking again. I was a very keen walker growing up and as a teenager, something that my dad did, bless him, always got out into the hills. And Laura had encouraged me to start walking around our house. She bought me a map and had my photograph put on the front of the map. You can do <laughs> this and called it, you know, Mum's Walks. So I'd started to get out walking, which is possibly what kept me sane. Um, anyway, she'd come home so that we could walk the West Highland Way, obviously knowing that there was no way I could walk the West Highland Way, but she, so she still came home to see what she could do to help. And I had evidently had some kind of meeting with my other siblings without me knowing and said what on earth are we going to do to sort mum out because if we don't sort her out we're going to lose her the way she's going we're going to lose her so it was decided that she would take me up to a buddhist monastery in dumfries and galloway that she used to go to as a head of department in education she was somebody also that recognized what stress did to you so she used to go and spend as much time as possible up at this monastery to reset herself, she used to say, in the summer months. And uh, she knew that this would be a really great place to take me. So what did she say to you? Uh, <clears throat> well, I can't repeat most of what she said to me <laughs> because it, there's a lot of Fs in there. But she said, whether you like it or not, I am taking you to this place and I'm not coming back for you until you have sorted yourself out and you've seen the light, basically. And she left me there crying. I was just... I was just literally stood in the reception of this monastery, which was kind of half built at that point. They were doing quite a lot of alterations to it. And it just looked like a crazy place with flags flying and, you know, this big gold dome in the middle of, of, of this valley in Scotland where there was nothing else. And a very kindly nun came over and took me to a little bedroom and said, you, this is where we are if you need us and this is where you'll go for your tea and and you, you know you must have thought what on earth yeah I would just I was just but I was spent Holly I was spent I kind of was almost not thinking mm. I, I was in that place where where almost my brain had switched off as well as my body and I and I was just suspended just yeah suspended and looking back on that kind of, I think it was the second evening I managed to make it into the, the lounge area where people gather. It was midweek, so there was only a very small group of people there. It was lovely. And everybody is just so helpful. And I can remember, I must have come across as somebody who was frantic or manic or when I think back at the speed that I used to talk to people and talk at people. Mm. I didn't used to listen to people. Mm. I just used to, you know, bleh, um, tell everybody everything about everything and, you know, 
impose my views upon everybody. Mm. And quite often I coach people that sound like that these days, that when they come to me, they are talking at 150 miles an hour and they are not pausing to draw for breath and, you know, and to be in that place where everything was slowed down, where the only thing that, you know, happened during the day was there were prayers or there was something simple to eat. And it was March time. So, it, you know, it, it wasn't summertime. It, it rained a lot. and and But I used to go and sit by the river and I just used to watch the river. And it fascinated me the way that the river, when it came upon an obstacle like a boulder, it just flowed. It altered its course and it flowed round the boulder. And I thought about this for, you know, days. But the main thing that happened was that I picked up a book which I thought was a biography. Almost by chance, just literally grabbed this book off a bookshelf in, in the little library. Couldn't sleep the second night in, in terrible pain. Took some more of my painkillers, sat up in bed, made the decision that I was going to ring my husband in the morning to come and get me because this was bloody ludicrous me sitting in this little bedroom with a hook on the back of the door and a bed and nothing else in this place with nun, you know, nuns and monks chanting. It was just ridiculous. But I opened this book up and after the first eight pages, it was actually a poetry book. Now, I love poetry. I've written it on and off all my life. I was trained for many, many years to recite poetry. And actually, I'm a drama teacher along the way. And this book of poems had been written by a nun who lived mostly out in, in um, society. If you're a Buddhist nun, you can still marry and, you know. So, but she used to come to the monastery regularly and she wrote this most beautiful book of poetry. But then she, she died soon after in her 50s of cancer, which was a great loss. But a certain poem that I read will stay with me forever. And the last verse was, the more you seek, the less you find. Behold your own despair. When you decide to look no more, then I'll be everywhere. Now, it still makes me want to cry when I say it because this was just an absolute epiphany. I sat in that room where I wrapped in my blanket and read this poem of about 10 verses over and over and over, which was all about stop looking out there because the secret to fulfillment and contentment and happiness is inside. Nothing out there is going to give it you. And it was just amazing. And the amazing thing was that I knew that my kids got that and they were so wise and they were so young. And here was me at kind of 56, 57, only just getting it. And I resolved to come back and change not totally change because you, you can't totally change your life. You know, I had responsibilities. I'd still got mum. Mm. I'd still got Katie at home as in her mid-teens going through some stuff. And I had a, a, a relationship, you know, I had the most wonderful husband who'd been ignored for years. But I did resolve to find ways to cut back on, on the work and change. I think that's really interesting I think we can all probably talk about profound moments in our life where we've learned something. And I can recall events from the last 20 years in my career in education where I've learned stuff. But every time it's been buried, it's been buried by life, it's been buried by busyness, it's been buried by overwhelm. 
What made this one so different for you? This was a realisation that I'd, I, I really had got so, so ill, I think. Mm-hmm. And I'd really lost my way. I, this was a realisation that the things that I had been doing that I thought were the right things to do were actually not the right things for me. And I think that that has to come to everybody in their own time. Mm-hmm. I think it's like, you know, you could never persuade somebody to give up smoking. They've got to do it for themselves. Mm. And for for me, it was that. And I didn't want to completely step away from all this fantastic experience that I got of, of, of business and life. And I just needed to find ways to use it in a different way. It was a very difficult decision for me to gradually step down from those boards. So I was on four boards then. And as they came up for renewal... I stepped down from them. I didn't leave people in the lurch. I started to look for, you know, clients that would would not be big, long projects that would, would be give me some more flexibility in the way that I worked. I gradually let my staff go. I let my offices go. So over the year, I went back many, many times to the monastery to do more thinking. I met somebody also in that first week there who who had had a similar epiphany about five years before and she was doing something creative now and I resolved to bring back creativity into my life around writing. So I went to the monastery about every six weeks to write and I wrote letters to this woman that I'd met over two meal times. She was called Jenny. I don't know anything else about her. I don't know where she came from but Every time I went to the monastery, I wrote letters to Jenny charting my progress. Going back to the monastery kept me focused, kept me knowing that this was the right thing for me. And I gradually got to the point where I started to find other things that I was interested in, new things that I wanted to learn about. One Mm. of the monks had given me a pen drive with a lot of really great stuff on. And I used to sit because I was still, it took me ages to get well. I mean, they they found out eventually that I got shingles and it had gone internally. Mm -hmm. So there was no sign of it. And it took me about six months, I think, to to return to full health and get back into walking properly. I I set myself a a target of walking a thousand miles a year, which is a something that Country Walking Magazine support you to do. That really helped. And the walking, you know, brought the poems and the writing. I resolved to only work four days a week. And actually, if you work four days a week and you're organised, you can get five days work done in four days without <laughs> it killing you. And in the, on the pen drive were some really interesting things. And I just let myself be led to things that I found spoke to me. And you, you say as well that at this during this period you feel that you, I don't know, was it a rediscovery or was it a yeah. new discovery of, of your gift? When I was up at the monastery, one of the questions I asked myself was, when was the last time you actually felt like you? And it was when I was 16. And that was when I was at college and I was involved in, and whilst I was doing the A-levels that my parents <laughs> suggested that I did, mm-hmm. uh, which were geography, maths and biology, because I had this idea that I really wanted to work for the Forestry Commission, and then I ended up being a finance director. I was also so interested in writing at college, and I was in amateur dramatics, and I used to do contemporary dance, and, and I used to write a lot of poetry then, mm-hmm. and then it kind of all dried up. Mm-hmm. And... I think that if I could go back again, I would stick to my guns as a teenager and say to my mum and dad, I want to write. 
I want to do English. I don't want to do biology, geography and maths just because I got decent results. I want to I want to maybe even look at acting, you know, but I was brought up in a family where you didn't go against what your mum and dad suggested. I love this quote here. You said, living your truth and showing up in the world as the authentic you takes courage. I absolutely agree. Yeah. And I, and I do think that the benefit of younger generations is that they, I think, are actively encouraged to do that, more so than than people like you or I of our generations have ever been able yeah, to do. Yeah, I was in that funny generation, really, where my parents' generation, most of the women didn't work. Mm. And we were the first generation that were choosing careers outside of nursing, admin, banking. We were actually really being encouraged to go out there mm. and do whatever mm. you wanted to do. However, society wasn't quite ready enough for us to do what we wanted to do. So it was a, you know, it was an ongoing battle. Mm -hmm. And those are the things that I ended up in my career fighting for for women. So I wanted to now be able to share this, you know, epiphany that I'd had with people. You know, I've written a book about it. That's one way I want to share it. But the other way that I wanted to share it was to move my work in a direction that allowed me to bring in some of the things I'd learned. So one of the first things I went off and did was I learned how to be what they call a heart math practitioner. Now, heart math is something that's been around in the States for 25 years. It's uh, a way of learning to breathe and think so that you can reduce the stress levels in your body. So I became a heart math practitioner where you record your heart rate variability, which is what is happening to the heart muscles between your heartbeats and how smoothly, you know, your heart is working really and what connection that has with the brain and the hormones and everything. Really interesting stuff. So I started to deliver some of that to clients who were very, very stressed out. Uh, with amazing results, then went and learned how to do something called leadership embodiment, which is looking at how the body instinctively reacts to pressure and stress and is used a lot in uh, in leadership coaching and teaching. Mm -hmm. So that was something else. And then wanted to put on um, to design a retreat and wanted to get people away and immerse them in this stuff like I'd mm, been immersed mm, in this mm. change. So then I started to run retreats and they, they've been very successful. And I also now incorporate, and this has been a very interesting fusion actually, to somehow bring the business experience that I've got and the new, you know, resilience, reducing stress, well-being aspect to bring those two together. And the way that I've been able to do it is to incorporate it into workshops and programs that are very much around communicating and communicating your truth, as I've said here, and bringing the whole of you mm. to every role. Mm. OK, so for this, I have followed the, the works of somebody called Parker J. Palmer. And the first book of his that I read was called A Hidden Wholeness. He comes from a background like yours, Holly, in that he was an educator and was noticing that, you know, how stressful it was for people in education who had been drawn to this profession because they wanted to nurture children. 
you know, they wanted to to treasure children, mm -hmm. not measure children. Mm -hmm. And this is what Parker talks about. And they had these conflicting values between what were their real core values and what they were having to do in education. So he developed retreats, etc., in the in the states initially for teachers, but then expanded it across the medical profession and professional services, etc., and teaches people how to slow down, how to make space, um, how to ultimately listen to what is your inner teacher, your inner voice, your soul, what, whatever it is that you want to call it yourself. Okay. What, what advice would you give right now to the listeners for somebody who is feeling trapped and unfulfilled and overwhelmed? What practical takeaways could you give? I would say that you will probably need somebody to support you on this journey. Mm -hmm. So whether that be a coach, whether that be by, you know, reading or finding something online, if you feel that, you know, you didn't, you know, have the money to invest in, in personal coaching, yeah, I would love people to read my book because there's lessons in my book. Mm -hmm. And when you've read the book, you can actually, you will be able to download lessons from the website. I would say to people, please do not be put off by thinking you have to completely change your life and this is going to take loads of time and you're going to have to go off on retreats and you're going to have to spend, you know, a day a week. I know how busy everybody is. But if you can consider doing something like learning with a heart math practitioner or learning with a coach just for an hour a month, how to free up space. This is the key to it. You need to be able to free up a little bit of space and it might only be 10 minutes a day where you go and stand in the garden and thank the world for your family and your home and your friends and you look at a flower or you walk just for 10 or 20 minutes a day. You need to find something, and for me it was nature, but you need to find something that enables you to switch off and just do nothing for about five or 10 minutes or 20 minutes a day. I am not a big fan of these watches and things that go beep, beep and remind you, you now need to be mindful for five minutes <laughs> because I just don't think it works like that. It's to be honest, I've been guilty of that it's a bit checkboxy, you know. Yes, oh yes, I can fit it bit, into my it's life. It's a bit checkboxy. I can fit it into my life, and I've done ten thousand steps a day because I walked to the toilet and back four times. It, I'm, I'm sorry, but I really think you need to find something that you know mm. speaks to mm. your soul. It's got more it'll integrity behind be, it. It'll either be some music where you feel the hairs on the back of your neck rising or, yeah. and you actually feel your insides melting. It will be, you know, looking at something. It will be going and standing in an art gallery. It will be something where you can be quiet because this is the key. So in all the noise and the messages that you're receiving all the time and the fact that you've got six gadgets on the go at the time and all this, it's switch it all off for 10 or 20 minutes a day. And the other key is to be thankful, is to practice being thankful. So when you wake up in the morning, just to spend a couple of minutes in the shower, not thinking about, oh, I've got to finish that today. Oh, mm -hmm. so-and-so's mm -hmm. going to call me in for a meeting. Mm -hmm. It's actually to say, thank you. I don't care who you're saying thank you to. You can be saying thank you to yourself. You don't, doesn't have to be religious. 
Thank you for letting me wake up this morning and have another wonderful day with my family and my partner or my friends or my parents or whoever it is you, you know you're with. And just saying, you know, let me be kind today. Let me be wise today. Mm. One or two of these things in the morning. And before you go to bed at night, 10 minutes writing your journal, get all that down on the page, all the things that have upset you during the day, get it on the page and then end up by writing three things that were great. It was fantastic when I got in and my little boy ran up and gave me a hug. It was fantastic to listen to that song and sing it in the car. It doesn't have to be big things, but always go to sleep with a thankful thought. Wendy, this has been an absolute pleasure and a privilege. You know, I, I feel sitting here that I've had a little bit of coaching today, even though we're recording this for a podcast, because so much of what you say chimes really quite deeply with me. And there's times where you've been talking today where I've kind of had to hold myself together and not get a bit teary-eyed because you've just described so much of me. And I'm sure that listeners out there will feel exactly the same way. So thank you, honestly, truly from the bottom of my heart for coming and sharing your story. I've really enjoyed my sharing my story. And if people want to read more of my story and read some of my poetry and be able to go on the walks that I do, then they'll all be there in my book, which will be out early December. You'll be able to get it on Amazon and it's called Words Walks Wisdom or you can get it on my website. Great. And I know that all that's going to be Yeah, we'll available. make sure that all of that is included in the show notes below. We'll also mention a little bit about heart math. Um, Leadership about, embodiment. Yeah, Parker J. Palmer and the Hidden Wholeness. And obviously we'll put the links there to your website. Wendy, thank you very much. Thank you. Let's start by asking ourselves Wendy's poignant question. When was the last time that you really felt like you? For those of us with manic lives, it's really easy to get lost in the fog of being busy, not letting anyone down and striving for the next rung on the ladder of success. I really applaud Wendy's bravery in sharing her story. I don't think enough people are prepared to show this level of vulnerability and really be open with the rest of the world about the struggles they endure behind closed doors and within themselves. Often we only find out really late on in the day. The truth is that in this fast paced world of today that we all face these issues. We're all at risk of exhaustion and perspective loss if we don't take action to get balance. Of course, very few are able to down tools and walk away from the day job. But as Wendy says, even with small changes, we can make a tangible difference to our lives. Don't struggle alone. Reach out and ask for help. There is always someone at the other side of the door. There are a number of resources on the website that can help and support if you're feeling overwhelmed and burnt out. I'll make sure that I link to them in the show notes. Make sure that you check them out at www.rediscoveryofme.com. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast and that in some way it's added value to your life. Thank you for joining me. I've been your host, Holly Hartley. Please make sure that you tell everyone you know who might benefit from listening all about the show. It's free to listen to, of course, in any app that supports podcasts. Make sure that you click like and leave a review. I'll see you on the next edition of the Life Stories podcast, where we'll explore what it's like to face a cancer diagnosis. Remember, one person's story really can be someone else's survival guide. You are 
enough。